Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 51, Resistance. This episode's newest Patreon supporters are Nathaniel York and Anthony Tsvetkov. Thanks a lot to Anthony and Nathaniel for supporting the show. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. So last time, Bulgaria joined the Byzantines in the ranks of Ottoman vassal states, as that empire rapidly expanded its political and military control of the region. To aid in this, Sultan Murad created a new Janissary Corps a fearsome military unit comprised of slaves of the Sultan himself. Just at the end, we saw the fall of Sofia, not because its impressive walls failed, but because its commander was tricked, and Turnovo once again failed to send aid. And so we're back in 1385. The first thing to occur that year was yet another rebellion by Andronicus IV. Now, you'll remember that he had been fighting his father, John V, on and off for more than a decade at this point. Yet, remarkably, his father seemed to forgive him every single time, allowing him once again to become co-emperor following his last failed attempt to use a war between Venice and Genoa to regain the throne himself. But this was the last rebellion for Andronicus IV. It was over almost as soon as it began, and the co-emperor was killed in the city of Salimbria, just outside of Constantinople, which his father had given him to rule. He was just 37 years old, and his endless feuding with his father had been one more in a wave of contributing factors to the Ottoman expansion during his lifetime. Having weakened the Byzantine state over and over again with his rebellions and alliances with foreign powers. Sometime that year, more conflict was brewing between the Ottomans and the Serbs as well. The region of what's now central Albania was experiencing a conflict between an Albanian feudal lord and a Serbian one. The Serbian lord asked Venice for assistance in the conflict, while the Albanian lord requested the same from the Ottomans. Now remember, the Ottomans were fairly decentralized as a power, thus, while Sultan Murad may have been far away at the time, another pasha, based in Macedonia, answered this request for help from the Albanian lord. When the Ottomans arrived, the Serbian lord immediately gathered forces in Duras and rushed out to meet the far larger Ottoman and Albanian force. Unsurprisingly, the vastly outnumbered Serbs were completely destroyed and their lord killed. Now, as a result of this colossally stupid move, the Ottomans immediately obtained a strong vassal state in the area, which was now ready to expand with their help to conquer the territories of that Serbian lord who they had just killed. As a result, Duras was captured along with much of what is now central Albania by the Ottomans around this time. The following year, while that expansion was occurring in Albania, Ottoman Sultan Murad I once again took his army north to invade Serbia 
and take advantage of its weakness and division following the collapse of its empire. He was met with initial success, conquering Nish, the largest city in southern Serbia, and the birthplace of Constantine the Great, the founder of the Ottoman's great prize, Constantinople. Murad clashed on and off with the forces of Lazar, who, as I mentioned, was sort of the last and most powerful Serbian prince to emerge out of that empire's collapse. Lazar had defeated Murad four years earlier at the Battle of Dabravince, and seemed to be the only figure in the Balkans capable of doing so at this stage. In 1385, a Serbian feudal lord in Škodr, a city now in northern Albania, had written a letter to Murad offering him a deal. The deal was that if the Ottomans would provide soldiers and protection, this lord would become an Ottoman vassal. Obviously not a remarkable offer for the time. Murad sent the commander with 20,000 light cavalry and scouts to Škodr to enforce the deal in 1386. As the Ottoman forces crossed southern Serbia towards the west, they received reports that Serbian forces under Lazar were massing to meet them. However, their scouts were unable to find any such forces, and thus the rumors of this Ottoman army were dismissed. With this information in hand, most of the Ottoman force broke up to loot the unprotected towns and villages in the area, thinking that they were safe. There was no Serbian force coming to get them. The Ottoman commander was left with a corps of 2,000 troops. However, the Ottomans had made a critical mistake. There was in fact a substantial Serbian army of 30,000, mostly made up of cavalry, with a substantial portion of armored knights observing their movements and preparing to strike. Once the majority of the Ottomans had disbanded, it was time to attack. Once the Serbian cavalry charge came, the 2,000 core soldiers and their commander hardly stood a chance. Vastly outnumbered, the Ottomans broke with their commander, barely escaping with his life. Now, the Serbs turned to the scattered Ottoman soldiers in the surrounding area, hunting them down. Ultimately, only about 5,000 returned to Murad out of the 20,000 who had initially left. It was a crushing defeat for the force. However, what had been lost were light troops, not the more powerful core of the Ottoman army. Still, it was the first serious blow to the Ottomans, forcing Murad to reconsider his plans for the time being. The Battle of Plochnik also gave serious credibility to the Serbs in general and Lazar in particular. The Bulgarians and Byzantines seemed helpless to quell the rising Ottoman tide, but the Serbs were ready to take a stand. Thus, on the whole, Murad's attempts to expand into northern Serbia were crushed, but the Ottomans were still expanding into Albania, and these two battles really set the stage for the next few years. The Ottomans were halted in Serbia, but slowly expanding to the west, with their vassals there. Now, the very next year, in 1387, they had successes elsewhere, as a four-year-long siege of Thessalonica finally succeeded, marking a significant Ottoman expansion further south. This also marked the loss of a city that had been the second largest, second most important in the Byzantine Empire for centuries. Only Constantinople had outshone Thessalonica. And while the city may have fallen to the enemies of the Byzantines on occasion, it had always returned, but not this time. 
John Fine actually references Byzantine sources, which indicate that the city fell more to poor morale than to actual military dominance by the Ottomans. So similarly to what had happened in Sofia and so many other battles and cities around the Balkans, the Ottomans were not conquering great city fortresses of the region with pure military dominance. Often they were simply conquering with poor morale and foolish commanders on the part of their enemies. Still, in spite of victories at Thessalonica and in Albania, the Ottoman defeat at the Battle of Plochnik told Tsar Ivan Shishman in Tornovo that now was the time to rise up and finally take a firm stand against Murad now that he had been wounded to some extent. And so, in 1388, Ivan Shishman renounced his vassalage to Murad and to the Ottomans, essentially declaring, re-declaring if you will, Bulgarian independence. The Ottoman response came as a surprise to no one. 30,000 Ottoman soldiers, with the Ottoman Grand Vizier, which is kind of like a prime minister, I'll talk more about that role in the future, Ali Pasha, at the head of this army, invaded Bulgaria to re-exert control. Now, a moment ago, when I said that the Ottoman response came as a surprise to no one, okay, maybe that was a lie. Maybe it came as a surprise to none of you listeners who have been paying attention, but apparently this was all a surprise to Ivan Shishman because he was completely unprepared for this invasion. Now, what he thought was going to happen when he declared the end of his vassalage to the Ottoman Empire is really a mystery because this seems like the only logical thing that would occur to me, but still, Shishman seems to have been taken off guard. So, he fled Tornovo to the Danube fortress of Nikopol, which was quickly put under siege by the Ottomans. The Tsar, seeing no options, asked for peace. And the Ottomans agreed. As long as he surrendered Silistra, a large and important fortress city on the Danube, and obviously became an Ottoman vassal again. Everything was agreed when Ivan Shishman received word from Lazar of Serbia, who had become a closer ally when his daughter Dragana had married Ivan Shishman's son Alexander two years previously. So you can see, you know, Ivan Shishman is reacting to Lazar's victories, their children are getting married, Serbia and Bulgaria kind of trying to come closer and form an anti-Ottoman alliance. So Shishman is ready to give up, ready to surrender, but he receives word from Lazar. That help is coming, that's just hold on. And so Ivan Shishman changes his mind and refuses to surrender. This leads Ottoman forces to march through the country and capture fortresses and cities around Bulgaria, like Madara, Schumann, Svistov, Cherven, Ovec, Venchin, and the old capital of Preslav, still an important center of learning. Though they did fail to take Varna, after a serious uh, defense by the city by its inhabitants, it seemed to have made little difference, because they conquered nearly everywhere else. Worse than that, help did not seem to be forthcoming, and the Ottomans were conquering this country actually more quickly than Ivan Shishman anticipated. And so ultimately, in spite of his encouragement from Lazar and the Serbs, he decided he had to capitulate. And so he agreed to the same terms before, but with now, but now kind of with Ottomans garrisoning even more cities than they would have before. So ultimately, Ivan Shishman got an even worse deal, and more Bulgarians died as a result of him waiting to surrender. Also, at some point during this war, Ivan Shishman's younger brother, Ivan Asen V, was killed. Now, there's speculation 
Ivan Asen V may have actually converted to Islam. We do have, don't have a lot of information about how he died or his conversion. We just have this hint in a burial inscription commissioned by his sister-in-law. But Ivan Shishman and Ivan Stratzimir were now the last two living sons of Tsar Ivan Alexander. One sort of ruling in Tornovol, the other ruling in Vidin. All the other sons have been killed by the Ottomans now. Also, as a result of this war with Tornovol, Ivan Stratzimir decided that he too had to become an Ottoman vassal. With the Ottomans at his border and a front row seat to see just how quickly they were able to subdue Bulgaria, Stratzimir seemed to believe that there was really nothing else he could do. Thus, in the end, Ivan Shishman ended up controlling just the lands around Tornovol and a few cities on the Danube as overall, as sort of an overall vassal uh, of the Ottomans, as well as he possibly controlled uh, the principality of Kavarna over on the Black Sea coast, which had fought off the Ottomans at Varna, but that state's status is a little unclear. But the Ottomans did face some setbacks. I mean, they really kind of put the hammer to Bulgaria and reconquered it very quickly and decisively. But in that summer, while that campaign was going on in Bulgaria, the Ottomans mounted an attack on the kingdom of Bosnia. This kingdom had appeared very insulated from the Ottomans, but one of its hostile neighbors had become an Ottoman vassal, and this quickly kind of brought the two states into conflict. Therefore, Murad sent two of his sons at the head of a substantial army to invade Bosnia. The Ottoman army reached Bileca in southern Herzegovina, but were ambushed in a rocky gorge. The result was a massacre with Murad's sons barely escaping with their lives. The Ottoman army, though, was crushed, saving the kingdom of Bosnia to fight another day and further weakening the Ottomans, just as they were making such enormous gains in Bulgaria. But it is important to note that this was not a massive main army. Uh, both, both armies that had lost significant battles in this region to the Serbs and to the Bosnians in these years were sort of you know, 20,000 soldiers and below, not a major 30 to 40,000 like main Ottoman force. Still, they were serious losses. Now, the Ottoman distraction in Bulgaria, as well as this loss in Bosnia, had had an effect, though. They allowed Lazar and Serbia to further kind of leverage his position, uh, owing also to his last victory, and assemble a coalition to resist Murad. It gave him some breathing room to start to put this together. And he knew that a showdown was inevitable. And so he began to really gather all of his forces, the biggest army he could, near Nish, to see and wait and watch what the Ottomans were going to do, if they would bring a main army to oppose him. Now, Murad, for his part, traveled west, bringing his soldiers from Philippopolis to Ihtiman, to what is now Kustendil, near the Bulgarian-Macedonian border, and into what and from there into what is now the northern part of the Republic of Macedonia. This movement kind of kept his options open. He wasn't yet sure whether he wanted to strike Lazar, who was gathering near Nish, or strike further west at other Serbian nobles. But ultimately, it was Lazar who advanced south to meet the Ottomans and to choose a battlefield, kind of forcing Murad's hand, forcing him to meet and engage. Just between these two armies was a large kind of valley, a plain called Kosovo. This plain was surrounded by mountains, and in the center was Kosovo Polje, Kosovo Fields, also called the Field of Blackbirds. 
Now, this battlefield, Lazar believed, would prevent the Ottomans from exploiting their numerical advantage because of its size. But in any case, it was land that would allow both armies to really fight at full strength and engage each other at once. So now let's answer the question, just who were these armies? What were what was their makeup? Now, the best information we have says that Murad had perhaps 40,000 soldiers, possibly less than that, down maybe to 27,000, uh, their various estimates. But about half of them were traditional Ottoman light cavalry and infantry. The rest consisted of about 2,000 elite janissaries and 6,000 spahis, which are kind of Ottoman regular cavalry. And it's also a social class, and I'll talk more about who the Spahis were as we get more into the Ottomans. Uh, there were also then a few thousand cavalry that acted as a kind of special guard for Murad. Plus, add in 8,000 Serbian troops, which were from his vassals. Remember, I said vassals would give troops on occasion. So overall, it was a very powerful force and a very balanced force. Not a lot of heavy infantry, though the Serbian troops may have been more heavy infantry, but you've got Medium cavalry, light cavalry, light infantry, probably some heavy infantry. Now, Lazar's force was brought together from his own allies, as well as some soldiers sent by King Tvrtu I of Bosnia, and led by a commander who had recently defeated the Ottomans there. So, a serious Bosnian force. And there was another main force led by a powerful Serbian nobleman, Vuk Branković. So, we've got the Bosnian force, this Vuk Branković force, and the forces of Lazar. These are the three main segments of the Serbs, and each with their own commander, though with Lazar in overall command. Now their force probably numbered maybe 30,000, but again, quite possibly quite a bit less, with about half being Lazar's personal forces and the other half divided between those of his two allies. This army was generally made up of more heavy infantry and armored knights in the Western style. The battle also contains something we've yet to see in this podcast, artillery. Now, the first reported use of cannons in war was decades earlier, in 1346, by the Genoese in a war against the French. There's some mixed sources on whether or not the Ottomans or perhaps both armies had some of these kind of rudimentary early cannons, but it does seem that they were present in the battle. So this marks the first time artillery has been used in the Balkans. Now, I don't have to tell you that uh, gunpowder weapons are going to become kind of a thing as time goes on, so this is a fairly important kind of landmark. So, the battle began with some kind of ineffectual fire by these cannons, as both armies seemed to be a bit out of range of each other. So, again, while the presence of the artillery is significant, it didn't really have much of an effect. Then Murad sent his archers forward and began peppering the Serbs and Bosnians from behind an anti-cavalry barrier that they had constructed. The Allied forces, which, I'll, which is what I'll call the Serbs and Bosnians, were kind of undaunted and decided to mount a full cavalry charge in spite of the barrier that had been built between the armies by the Ottomans. The charge successfully broke through the barrier and scattered the arches before slamming into the full Ottoman army. The results were mixed. The Ottoman left wing was seriously damaged and beginning to break apart, but the center and the right held. Now, this gave an initial advantage to the Allies, but it also put them in a dangerous position because theirs was heavy cavalry, which was incredibly powerful in a charge, but less maneuverable afterwards. You you had that one big punch, 
But after that big punch, you weren't going to be able to kind of keep hitting like Ottoman light cavalry could. Thus, the Ottomans counterattacked and began to push the Allies back on their right flank. So now the Serbs and Bosnians, the Allies, are getting pushed back on the right, but they're advancing and beating the Ottomans on the left. So that's where we are at this moment. The center is kind of holding right forward, left back. And the entire battle is hanging in the balance. And it's at this moment, this critical thing that has been debated for centuries ever since, Lazar's ally, Vuk Brankovic, who commanded the force on the left that was succeeding, that was breaking the Ottomans, his army turns around and leaves the battlefield. Now, there are theories about why he must have done this. One is that Vuk actually betrayed Lazar, that he made a deal with the Ottomans. Though this kind of framing may be a way for later Serbian chroniclers to give the whole story a kind of Jesus as Lazar betrayed by Judas as Vuk sort of framework, which is very popular, kind of a popular way to display this battle to, to demonstrate it. So maybe that's the reason for this narrative. But the other is that Vuk Brankovic saw that the battle was going to be lost. He could see what was happening on the right wing, and he decided that he needed to save as many of his forces as he could to fight the Ottomans another day. But regardless of the reason, with the forces of Vuk Brankovic gone, the Ottoman left surged forward and attempted to flank the Allied soldiers. Shortly after, the Allied army was beginning to break apart as the more maneuverable Ottoman forces completely surrounded them. Lazar was killed in the fighting, and with him Serbia's great hope for a unifying figure to resist the Ottomans. But around that same time, something else happened. Well, one of two things. One story is that a Serbian noble named Milos Obilic went to the Ottoman forces to desert to their cause, saying, I'm ready to surrender, I'm ready to join you. Once in their camp, he met with Sultan Murad and pulled a concealed dagger out of his clothing, stabbing the Sultan and murdering him on the spot. The other story is that just when the Allied forces were completely surrounded by the Ottomans, Murad and all of his uh, small kind of retinue so Murad kind of sent all of his forces forward to finish them off, leaving himself vulnerable with very few people around him. A letter sent to the king of Bosnia described the events this way, quote, Fortunate, most fortunate are those hands of the twelve loyal lords who, having opened their way with the sword and having penetrated the enemy lines and the circle of chained camels, heroically reached the tent of Murad himself. Fortunate, above all, is that one who so forcefully killed such a strong voivoda by stabbing him with a sword in the throat and belly. And blessed are all those who gave their lives and blood through the glorious manner of martyrdom as victims of the dead leader over his ugly corpse. End quote. And so, however it happened, when the battle was over, both leaders were dead. And while the Ottomans held the field, both armies take took enormous losses. Upon hearing the news of his father's death, Bayezid I became the new sultan as the oldest son and had his younger brother strangled, as per Ottoman custom. But while Vuk Brankovic escaped with his soldiers to fight on, the problem now was that the rest of the Serbia, the rest of Serbia was extremely vulnerable to the Ottomans. They could do very little to resist the ongoing Ottoman conquest. Because, again, both armies took huge casualties, but the Ottomans had more soldiers coming, while the Serbs really had nothing left to give. Thus, following the Battle of Kosovo, 
Serbian nobles began becoming Ottoman vassals and sending their daughters and wives to marry Bayezid. Even Lazar's own daughter was sent to the Ottoman harem as his son Stefan Lazarevich became a loyal ally, contributing soldiers for new Ottoman conquests. Today, the Battle of Kosovo is a defining event in the building of modern Serbian nationhood and identity. It's endlessly debated, celebrated, and has been used as a justification for any number of great and terrible things. But really what it did was break Serbia once and for all. You know, the Battle of the Maritza had contributed. There had been victories and losses over the decades against the Ottomans, but the Serbs were the people who were really doing much more than anyone else to resist the Ottomans. And Kosovo may have been almost a draw in the way the battle kind of played out, but it was an Ottoman strategic victory because the Ottomans could take the losses and Serbia could not. And once Serbia's sort of will to fight was broken, Serbia was broken. Because as we've seen across the Balkans, as the Ottomans have conquered, like I said earlier, the problem very often is not that the militaries are weak in fighting the Ottomans, it's that they have very little morale, right? That they don't believe that they can win. And this battle simply contributes to that. Now I'm going to finish the episode here with Serbia now helpless in front of the Ottomans, the Byzantines muddling along as they lose more and more territory, and Bulgaria a mere shadow of its former self. There's been more resistance than usual in these years, but ultimately resistance is simply not enough. What's needed is victory. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, uspech, or in English, good luck.